As I sit here, I am so freaking uninspired. I just am. I don't feel like writing and I don't feel like reading. I'm in a bad mood. Honestly, I don't even feel like recording this intro. If it were four hours later, I'd be in bed. I hate feeling this way, especially as a writer where I rely on energy and oomph and passion. But here's the thing. It's okay to lose days. Like the whole make every day count blather. It's just bullshit. It's all right to have throwaway days. To say, this one's just not working. So go watch TV or ride your bike or drink a Pepsi, jerk off, play pool, read a book, gargle, shower, swim, eat, nap, whatever. Writing isn't meant to be a 24-7 endeavor. It's okay to just chill. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Lacey Rose, the executive editor of TV at The Hollywood Reporter and an interviewer of many a celebrity. This is episode number 253. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, well, Lacey, first of all, I have to ask you the question that's been on my mind for the last 20 seconds, which is uh, apparently in 1995, you came in third place at the North Atlantic Regional Figure Skating Championships at the Glen Falls Civic Center. Uh, Your life has been all downhill ever since. Was that your Olympics? That was my Olympics. It was, and it has all been downhill from there. And you do not figure skate anymore. I do not figure skate anymore. That's bullshit. You're robbing me, <laughs> robbing the world of your artistry. I just want you to know. I'm not. I, I can assure you I'm not. All right. So um, I'm fascinated by something. In your job at The Hollywood Reporter, you interview many celebrities and you interview many mega, mega, mega celebrities. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're interviewing a celebrity and it is someone who is used to being on, how do you know they're not bullshitting you? Listen, sometimes they are. I mean, <laughs> that and these people are very good at, at what they do. I mean, I think in in my experience, I'm pretty selective about who I want to interview. Right. I mean, I you have a sense for who is going to be on and who you can actually sort of cut through with. And I I mean, I just it, it's a waste of time to to uh, to sit down with someone who's going to sort of be bullshitting you the whole time. Um, does that usually happen for the first 10 minutes of an interview? Yes, of course. Right. I mean, but if you are, you know, halfway decent at your job, uh, your job is to break that down. Um, so you allow it to happen um, initially and then you just keep scratching and scratching and scratching. All right. So we'll use this as an example. You send me a link to a Q&A you did with Oprah. Uh-huh. in 2019. And you interviewed Oprah at her hotel suite in Manhattan. You wrote in the article, she invited the Hollywood reporter to her hotel suite in Manhattan, where she was promoting her book, The Path Made Clear. You're going into this Q&A with Oprah. And Oprah is one of the, whatever, 10 most famous women in America, maybe five, you know, maybe three. Oh, I, maybe one. You go into this interview. I'm actually really interested in this. Number one, are you intimidated? Is there, are you at this point in your career intimidated? Well, that was not my first time sitting down with with Oprah. Um, so at, at that point, not at all. Um, I had I had been to her home in Montecito a few years before. Um, and I would say when I did that, that was probably one of the three times that I've probably been intimidated in my career, just just going into it. But uh, again, like the minute you sit down, that that goes away. When I was doing the interview you're talking about, no, at that point, 
it's just a person who is is interesting and is going to give me interesting things. So I think the intimidation sort of goes away quickly. But the first time I sat down with Aubrey, yes, like I will not lie to you. You definitely have like and it's not so much that that she's intimidating. It's. I want to make this worth it. Right. This is the one of the best interviewers in the world. Like I want to show her that I can do this, too. I think it's that more than anything else. Like I want to do a good job with this. And she knows what's a good what a good interview is. You're going in. I will go to your first interview with with Oprah. You go to her home. And. What would make a good Oprah interview? Like, what are the things you need to do? To make it a good interview as opposed to a shitty yet another crap ass kissing Oprah interview. You know, I think the thing about an Oprah interview is you don't necessarily know what you're going to get from it. Right. Like and I think what makes her a good subject is that she knows what makes a good interview. Right. So she's going to give you something that you are not expecting that you're going to walk away being like, wow, this was uh, you know, I, this is interesting. This is new. I mean, I I followed this woman's career. I've watched her, you know, on a, on a daily show for, you know, growing up, there's, there's been so much access to her and so much information about her, like what could possibly be new. And then all of a sudden she sort of gifts you with something that's new. So I, so I think it's actually, it's that it's the sort of, it's the unknowable piece that you're going to uh, get from her. Um, I remember, and, and now of course it's, it's all a bit of a blur, but that first time it was, she was really, really open about uh, not having children and the sort of, pain of that and the stigma around that and the choice around that. And I didn't go in thinking that's what, you know, where my story was, was going to go. I think the, the interview you're, t- you're referencing in the hotel suite, I mean, it was, it was about, it was about money and, and fame. Um, it was about, you know, walking away from 60 minutes, which at that point I didn't know she had done. And she was sort of revealing things again. I, I'm not walking into this knowing this is what I'm going to get, which I think is different from a lot of other interviews. Uh, But in her case, when there's so much information about her out there and you have so much access to her, the stuff that makes something that makes a piece different is like, is is the stuff like you have no idea um, until she delivers it. You go into this interview with Oprah, you've done your research, right? Like what do you go in with a bunch of questions? Do you have a notepad by your side with things you want to ask? Do you like, how do you arm for the interview? I go into every interview with a note card that has a million questions uh, that I never look at. Um, it is, I find it helpful to have written all of my questions down. Um, I can't read my own handwriting. So even if I wanted to read this note card in, in real time, I wouldn't. Um, but I do it because it organizes me walking in the door. So I, so I have in my head a, a framework for where I think this conversation could go. And if, you know, I need to look at it, it's, it's there as sort of a crutch for me. I can't remember the last time I actually looked at a note card while I'm interviewing someone. A good interview is a conversation, right? And then you go wherever the subject takes you. And, and certainly that is, I mean, you're, you're focusing somebody and, and you're taking, you're steering them, of course. Um, but I feel like, the best ones are just, I mean, just that they're, they're a conversation. All right. So we always say this in the business, like, right. Best interview is a conversation. Best interview is a conversation. We say that to young journalists all the time. You don't want to go in with 20 questions and you certainly don't want someone to tell you about his mom dying from cancer. And your next question is, so when did you move to Carmel? You know, like you don't. Yep. Okay, here we use Oprah again or Howard Stern. It doesn't even matter. Like people who are experienced interviewers, 
and they know all the tricks, right? They know every trick you're going to pull out because they use these same tricks. How do you actually make it a conversation? Is it a real conversation or is it a conversation with an asterisk? That's fair. I guess it sort of depends on it's. I mean, yes, I think often it's a conversation with an asterisk because you do ultimately you still have to go home and craft a narrative. Right. And so there still are some things that you need too. I mean, it's not just them trying to sort of steer you, steer you, you're, I mean, you're steering each other. Right. And so there is, there can be sort of a push and pull of like, okay, I have to walk out of this with the tools I need to write the story that I want to write. And sometimes the person on the other side, not all the time also are walking in and they have a very clear idea of what they think you should write. And so So, so yes. So is it like a, you know, a conversation with your friend that just meanders and can go anywhere? Like, no, let's, let's be clear. There are sort of parameters on, on, on both sides, um, unspoken ones. Uh, so yes, asterisk is probably, it's probably fair. Do you, do you go in with a tape recorder and the first thing you say is, do you mind if I tape? Um, as in, do I turn it on right away? What do you do? How does it work? I, it depends. Uh, you know, I think it it depends on who the subject is. Um, if it's somebody I know that it is easier to just pull it right out and, and start taping. Um, if I sense it's somebody who I need to be comfortable uh, first, I don't pull it out right away because I think it's then all of a sudden it's, it's, it's there and it's present and, and they're looking at it and they're thinking about it. And I don't, I don't need them immediately thinking about the fact that they are sitting here on, on the record and this is an interview. So if it's, if it's not going to have an impact, yes, immediately. If I think it's not going to be particularly helpful or conducive to them opening up, uh, I'll, I'll wait a few minutes. It's a complicated thing because like, we really want them to forget they're being recorded, yep. but there's a tape recorder right there. And I used to always have a notepad out and I, then I start thinking well, the notepad just screams, Yep. This guy's writing stuff down. I found and I'm, I'm curious sort of how you feel about this. I, I feel like the first few minutes that a tape recorder is sitting on a table with a certain type of subject. So somebody who's wildly comfortable being interviewed, like it's it's irrelevant. But for somebody who isn't as comfortable or is, is talking about something that they're not necessarily as comfortable talking about, the first few minutes where the tape recorder is on the table is probably not going to be particularly, it's not going to be the best stuff I'm going to get. But usually within 10 minutes... They've forgotten the tape recorder is there and it becomes, I mean, as we're saying, a conversation. But I do think, yes, like the first few minutes you turn on the tape recorder, the dynamic changes ever so slightly. Um, and then, again, if, if, if it's all flowing and, and you're doing a good job, like it, that goes away. Two of my favorite moments in interviews is when someone says, number one, no, say, um, I probably shouldn't say this. <laughs> it's the greatest thing you could ever hear. Uh-huh. Actually, I'll, I'll stop on that for a minute. When someone says, I probably shouldn't say this. It's amazing. You're like, yes. But then they, they, they're like, no, I don't know if I should say this. And then they pause. Do you try to get. <laughs> yeah, you get them to say it. Of course. It's like, you know, gold is coming. Of course. So how do you do it? Well, I mean, first it's just like a facial response. But usually if you're starting to say that, then they spill. It's rarely do you do they start to say that and then stop dead in their tracks. I mean, it's usually they're saying it because they want to say it. Right. It's somebody's told them not to say it, but they ultimately want to say it. Um, but yeah, those are like it's exactly what you want to hear. The and, other one is when someone's like um, they start crying and they're like, I'm sorry. And you're like, 
you got nothing to apologize for. I actually really love this. <laughs> this is fantastic. Those are both good. Um, it's interesting. I just did. I was just did a profile where the subject kept going off the record on and off and on and off and on and off. And at one point she sort of apologized. She's like, you must hate when people do that. And it was interesting because I think it depends on the type of interview and how much access you're going to get. I mean, in some cases, yes, I do hate that, but, but not in all cases because it can still you can still gather information about a person, even if it's not information that you can use. Right. Um, so, but so I would say that's like the opposite, right? Like that's the thing you hear and you're like, Oh God. Um, or the call after. What do you mean call after? <laughs> call after that's like, I really wish I hadn't said that. Um, and they try and walk it back and you're like, and then, and then you do the, the dance of, Listen, I mean, there was there was a recorder on and this was um, and, and, it, and it's a navigation. This is interesting for people who don't know who are listening. I interview someone like I interview Lacey for this podcast and Lacey calls me about 20 minutes later and she goes, can you not use blah, 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 blah. Now. There are times when I would say, of course, no, not a big deal. Right. Lacey says, blah, blah, blah. My my uncle has some disease. Can yeah. you not use that? Of course, yeah. not a problem. But the other times if Lacey's like. I hate my fucking boss. She's the worst. She's a bitch. I hope she dies. And then she calls me back 20 minutes later. If I'm writing a story on her, I might be like, to be honest, Lacey, that you you said it. So you've had that happen where people will call you and ask. I have had it happen a, a ton of times. And, and you mean, you just sort of hit on the two types of things. And in one instance, it's it's no problem. Um, I mean, there's also the calculation of like how do I actually need it? Right. Is it how, how material is it to the story that I'm writing? Um, and what is the actual reason that you don't want it in the piece? If, and I, and I think that's often, so, so sometimes it is actually, you know, I I've had situations like you where it's, it's fine. That's I, I don't need it. We'll, we'll let it be. Um, I've had other situations where a publicist will call after and tell me, you know, this subject doesn't, my client doesn't want this in the piece. Um, and if it's something that I feel like is material to the piece is really, and, and, and I understand, and, and, and some, I mean, there've been cases where like you sort of expect that call. Um, I will say, can I talk to the subject? Um, let's let me have that conversation with them. I don't want to do this through a, a third party. And, and more often than not, I can get the subject sort of comfortable with, with keeping it in, in, in some form because ultimately they said it for a reason. Are publicists more your enemies or your friends? They're not my enemies uh, by, by, by any means. And, and I think they can be helpful for sure, but they're also not and that they're not in my interviews. Um, so I, I don't see them as, as the enemies um, because I don't think that's ultimately going to be helpful, but, but they're also, I mean, are they my friends? No. So, but it, it's an interesting question. Um, I don't see them as my enemies, but I also won't do I won't sit down and do like a, a cover story with with a publicist sitting at the table ever, ever. And how often does a publicist say, I want to be in the interview or I'm going to sit in the interview, that kind of way? Um, 
it's been a while since one has. Um, and it's been interesting, like in the last two years when things have been on Zoom, um, because it's much easier for, I mean, a public will sort of set that up and then all of a sudden you'll see that box and they'll say, you know, I'm going to turn my camera off. But but there's still that box there. And and much like the recorder that we talked about sitting on the table, like if there's a if there's a black box there, it's still their presence is there. And I think it changes the dynamic of a conversation. And I think the subject is thinking about the fact that that person is is there and, you know, ha- how things are going to, to land in a different way. Um, so I've said in, in I'll say ahead of time, listen, I just it's not that I that I'm going to try to get your client to say anything that they wouldn't otherwise want to say. I just want to make sure the dynamic is between the two of us and that it, 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 we can actually sort of make a connection. And I think having a third party there can alter that. And do publicists usually sort of digest? I think, I think they get it. I think they get it. I mean, some, I mean, I don't know what kinds of conversations happens between them and their client from there. I mean, maybe some people fight it, you know, doing the winning time story on, on your book, I mean, that was a conversation before most of of my interviews. Wait, it's actually really interesting. So the, we met because you interviewed me for this story that you wrote about the show. And um, it's funny. This is my first sort of foray into this world, you know, like Hollywood. And, it, Hollywood, and it's interesting because, you know, you and I have journalism in common. And then there's a whole Hollywood component of it, which is new to me and old to you. And one thing that's really fascinating is um, I've helped set up a, a decent number of interviews with some of the people involved in the show with sports radio and sports media. And a lot of the, uh, the people I've dealt with will be like, well, can they arrange it through my publicist? And I'm always like, fucking just do the interview. Like, just do the fucking interview. Give me a fucking break. The sports radio guy in Portland doesn't need to call your publicist to get you on for 10 minutes. And that's the shit drives me up a fucking wall. But that's how, I mean, that is how the sort of, this industry works. Um, I don't disagree with you. I mean, it was <laughs> nothing made me happier than you reaching out to me and like, we can just, we can just set this up. Important point here. The HBO publicist who was lovely, by the way, and did a wonderful job, I thought. Uh, uh, d- wonderful. Right. Great. Um, Mandy Ellis. And she gets it like that. There's yes, there's a case of somebody who actually sort of understands. I, I yes, who didn't have to say all of these things, but nevertheless, go right. on. She was great, but you know, I get this thing, this email from her and it's like, you know, the Hollywood reporter reporter is named Lacey Rose and she would love to interview you and we could set it up and give me some time. And I was like, give me a fucking break. And I just like reached out to you via Twitter. And I was like, when do you want to do this? And then we did it. And that was it. And I just think, also like, say that I don't I don't want a publicist involved in the conversation. Did I say that? I, th- I think you told me, which. Yeah, because I had also made clear that like, yeah, I, I don't I don't want someone sort of sitting in on this conversation. But there you go. But yes. And like nothing made me happier to then have the sort of direct dialogue with you. Well, there would be nothing more ludicrous than two journalists talking and a publicist sitting. <laughs> in. That off. would be yeah, that, that, that's that's right. But I will say, OK, so here's we talk you you referenced Oprah, you referenced Howard Stern. And I would put I'm going to put you in this in that category yeah. for one second and go with me on this which is that I think why I thought you were so helpful and and, you know, became a sort of a huge piece of the narrative of of that story is because you knew what I needed to get a good story. Right. It's the same thing that I'm praising a Oprah and a Howard Stern for. It's I mean, you, you do a, a different thing, but but you all ultimately interview people for a living and you know what it is to get something great out of an interview. So I felt like you helped me craft. There was a narrative 
um, in the making of this show that was going to bring people in. And so I was super grateful. Well, I mean, all right, to go on this for a second. You, you like being in the Howard Stern Oprah bucket? No, here? no, no. I don't know. Not even remotely. I, okay. You write this story, you're working on this story. And I know for a fact that the fact that Jim Hecht showed up at my house in 2014 with a block of chocolate, a tomato, and a bottle of wine drink is great. Like it's great color. It's great color. fantastic. It's a cool origin story, blah, 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 blah. I am 1 million percent aware that I'll tell you this story and the odds are very strong that you will use it, right? And that's yeah. not me trying to manipulate. That's actually me trying to give you a good story. And there definitely were people with the show who were not happy <laughs> with the story, which I, I know of this. And I actually feel like people don't understand what makes a good story versus what makes like the color, the little objects, the minutia, like all that stuff is what makes a good story. And you must get tired of people calling you and being like, I have a great story. My guy has a movie coming out. It's awesome. All the time, all the time. 100%. I think you, yes, because everybody thinks they have a great story. Right. But I think the act like, the actual sort of the, the, the little tiny sort of pieces, but the interesting part of the, the story that you just told is that there was a, there was what made it even greater was that there was, it was bookended. Right. Right. And that was interesting. Cause I didn't know that. And that came, you mentioned that. And then you didn't know whether you should mention that. And you had me go back to Jim on, on that. And all of a sudden, I mean, that was so clear to me that that should be the sort of narrative of the show. But yes, uh, I think I think people just assume big star, great story. Big star does not make a great story. A, a show doesn't make a great story, right? I mean, it's it is the there's got to be an, an interesting sort of narrative there. You got to hook people. You got to bring them in, um, and you know, like and, and inter- also, I mean, you sort of mentioned that, yes, I interview the sort of biggest celebrities. I don't do a lot of actor profiles um, by choice. It's the I mean, there there are there are very clear exceptions. But I early on in, in my career at The Hollywood Reporter, which is going on sort of 11, I think 11 years now, um, I focused a lot more on on directors and showrunners and and comedians um, and and sort of more Mowgli type people because um, they were much more interesting to me. It was and and maybe it was the the sort of bullshit factor that that you mentioned at the beginning, or or maybe it was they don't they are not in in and this is this is changing for some, but like but actors felt like they were puppets in someone else's theater, right? Like they were not. They were not actually the puppeteers and and I wanted to talk to the puppeteer. Like I wanted to talk to the people who were pulling the strings. Like they were going to be more interesting to me. Um, they are also not as used to being interviewed. So they're a little raw um, and more open. Um, and I just think that so that sort of became my focus. I mean, you I think you had my colleague on uh, Seth uh, Duvall story uh, you're going, and he talked about sort of what a, a Seth story is. And I think um, I mean, this sort of joke among my colleagues and, and friends at work for a while was like a lazy story is more of the sort of the, the damaged artist, um, the sort of tortured um, creative types. There's a lot of showrunners who um, 
who are really, really vulnerable and open about their process and, and how sort of hard this world can be, even if it looks on the outside to be so wildly glamorous. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, and I am so frustrated by my dog, Poppy. Why? She refuses to wear this Doug Flutie jersey I bought her at royalretros.com. I don't understand. Have you tried explaining it to her? I mean, she's just a dog. Poppy, listen to me. I know you've been frustrated by the past wardrobe choices. The thong was definitely a bad idea. So were the platform boots. But this jersey was special ordered for you, Poppy Perlman, from RoyalRetros.com. It was made with the finest materials and symbolizes a glorious period in American sport. Now will you please go into the bitch's fitting room and try it on? That was amazing. Finally, your tuition dollars pay off. Back when I was at Sports Illustrated, ESPN, like Sports Center, was huge at the time. And they would always call the anchors, you know, Stuart Scott and Rich Eisen, all these guys. They'd always call them the talent, right? The Uh talent. Uh I'm like, I'm writing a fucking 5,000 word story. I'm slaving over this thing. Uh I'm not saying I'm fucking Shakespeare, but this guy is no more talented than me. You know, like, and I feel the same, like, whatever, this winning time with Adrian Brody and John C. Riley, like Max Bornstein, like is freaking up till four in the morning, losing his mind over this show. Like to me, that guy is far more the talent. And and to me, that guy is far more interesting. Right. Right. I mean, it's the gyms and the and the maxes and the you like are that the story is is always that story is just always going to be more more interesting to me. Um which is not to say like you you don't find an interesting actress. Like a but I, that, that is I, I'm not they all can't be painted with the same brush and, and I don't uh wanna suggest they they can be, but but yes, the, the tortured writer who's staying up until 4 a.m. and is at an absolute panic. Um, I don't know. That's just that's that's the catnip to me. Yeah, totally. Wait, I have one more question about the Oprah thing. I was curious about this. I'm reading it was a Q&A and you wrote uh, or you asked, let's talk about the cultural reckoning that's going on. One of your 86 jobs is at 60 minutes, which has been rocked by its own share of me, too. And she says, I'm no longer doing that. I've removed myself from that. So I now have 85 jobs now. Me as a journalist in those situations, when I when I say you at 60 minutes and Oprah's like, oh, I'm not there anymore. I'm like, oh, fuck. I just screwed that one up. Do you No. No, not at all. Tell me why. I'm not saying you screwed up. I'm saying I'm always like, uh, I fucked it up on a resume. It was not known. It was not. I mean, this was it was not at all known that she had that she had left that job. I mean, so that the, that was that became huge news. And she talked about why she had why she had left and 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 this is one of the things so I, I think and, and you're you're reading it but I but she talked about sort of that it was that was it was not a great fit for her and one and, and the example she used was at the beginning when you're introducing yourself at the beginning of 60 minutes all the anchors say um you know I'm Scott Pelley I'm Nora O'Donnell um they she had to keep taping her name over and over and over again. And they kept telling her there was too much emotion in her voice. And they were trying to take the emotion out of her voice because that is not the way the story should be. Story should be presented and she should be presented on 60 Minutes. And it, it took her back to an early an experience of early in her career when she was reporting on. And I can't remember um, what it was she was reporting on, but but something which 
you know, uh, something which was very emotional. And she was also told, like, you can't be emotional. You have to be detached. You are the journalist. And listen, Oprah has made it a career out of being emotional about being invested. And and um, so suddenly here she was at this juncture of, of her career and was told to sort of take the Oprah out of out of Oprah. Um, that's not going to work. Right. That's not why you sign Oprah Winfrey. Um, so, yes, if I if I was making if I was asking a question about 60 minutes and she tells me that's no longer one of her jobs and I should have known that from my research, I would have felt like like a fool. In this case, that was totally new news and nobody but her, her lawyer and uh, Jeff Fager at, at that point knew. You have a, your latest story. Your latest long story is uh, was a profile of Amy Schumer. Amy Schumer broke into a boys club. Now she wants to blow it up. Really great story. Your lead was, hey, crazy time, right? Lots going on. Her post began in June of 2020. The pandemic was raging. Ours was a Black Lives Matter movement. But Amy Schumer hit pause on parenting and protesting to praise the many women who had come forward with stories of misconduct at the hands of comedians in particular. Earlier that week, Chris D'Elia had become the latest to trend on social media with several women alleging sexual impropriety, which the comic denied. There are great men out there. She wrote to 11 million on Instagram and a few million on Twitter. And there are men who, uh, who humiliate and abuse women and girls because of a power dynamic or because when they were that age, girls wouldn't talk to them. Okay, soup to nuts. How do you actually get an Amy Schumer story? How does this actually become a story you're going to work on? What you just read was I had heard, I guess, two years ago, a year and a half ago, I had heard through the sort of reporting grapevine that Amy Schumer had sort of been working quietly behind the scenes in the sort of Me Too, Time's Up movement, um, helping sort of connect um, victims with, I didn't know uh, lawyers and and counselors, but I had heard that she had been doing, she had been linking them up with journalists, assuming they were ready to talk. She was actually um, Foster, you know, she was she was making those introductions. And I thought that was totally fascinating because it was I mean, if, if people did know about it, it was I'm sure she was burning bridges left and right. I mean, she was she is a woman who has had a tremendous amount of success in in a man's world. And, and unfortunately, you know, stand up comedy is 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 still very much a, a man's world. So hopefully changing. Um, so I had been on my radar. But like, you know, like most things in in this business, you have to wait until they are in a point where they want to talk about something. Now, in this case, she had she had his new show, uh, Life and Beth on Hulu coming. And so I just sort of I mean, as soon as I knew she had that project, I, I loved to call and said, I, you know, when she's when she's ready to do this, I'd love to do her cover. I didn't know. I mean, I got to the hotel room um, and she told me she was also hosting the Oscars. Um, and so all of a sudden, like there was way more to, to the story. Um, but I don't think that she necessarily would have, because there would be no reason for her to do the story sort of when I first heard that. And I think she wanted, she was really focused on actually like trying to make a quiet difference. Um, I don't know that she would have been psyched to publicize it at, at that point. Um, but you know, a year and a half later, when she had other things to promote, it became something that she was very comfortable talking about. To get these interviews, do these people have to be promoting something? For a cover, it is rare that someone just does a cover with nothing 
to gain from it. I mean, that is you can talk to people at, at any time and there are, there are other things. But but yeah, I mean, truthfully, otherwise, like they, there's no what do they have to gain from it? Now, that doesn't mean I'm not I, I am rarely am I interested in necessarily talking I mean, certainly not exclusively about whatever they're promoting. I mean, that's that's the sort of the reason that we're there. That that's rarely the sort of the whole story. But then, I mean, on the other hand, like, I mean, look at think about any sort of magazine when when you see a star and like you don't want to look at it and be like, why do I care about them now? It goes both ways. Wait, interesting something. So, Amy Schumer, you're you wrote, you know, she says sprawled out on a couch on the other side of Manhattan hotel room in early February. You go to see Amy Schumer. You're going to talk to her about certain issues that are, you know, the Me Too involved, related, et cetera, et cetera. Could you do this interview and could you do it as well if you were a male? I think without question, being a woman helps. We have children the exact same age. We went through um, real. She she had hyperemesis. I had had hyperemesis. Like there was there was a lot of dimensions in which we could connect. But yes, I think that I think I could go to places that you couldn't have gone to. I mean, I sit in in a in a cover meeting once um, or twice a month at our um, at the Hollywood Reporter. And, and there's a, there's a lot of talk about who should write what story, what, you know, who makes the most sense, who's going to sort of um, put a subject at ease, who who makes sense for the type of story we want to tell. I mean, that that is a that is a constant conversation. And I don't know that it always was, um, but it certainly is one now. Okay, interesting thought here. Do the subjects care? And what I mean is this. So, because I do the same thing you do, and I, in my career, same thing you do. Who would be, when I was at SI, who would be the best person to sit down across from this athlete and have this person open up? So maybe if it's an African-American ball player from the inner city, well, let's send this reporter because he would have that connection with him. If it's a Jewish guy, send him. Do the subjects give a shit? Uh, it depends on what you're talking about. And you don't want to do be like two on the nose either. But like, it depends. I, I If you want to tell a story about um, the lead that you just referenced with Amy Schumer, like sending a dude into that, maybe I'm projecting. Like, I, I, I just assume that the subject is going to be more more open. But it, it's not as simple. I mean, there was someone we're talking about, you know, a, a woman yesterday we're talking about doing a, a feature on and you know, you go back and you sort of read the things that she's done. We're like, you know, I think she would be better with with a guy. And so it's not as simple as like, oh, woman, we should have a female reporter, you know, black subject. We should have black. It's not it's not that simple. It's it's what do you want to talk about? Sort of what are you hoping to sort of get from this person? What will put them at ease sometimes? I mean, you don't really want to open it up uh, to conversation with a publicist because I think that gets dicey quickly like they shouldn't have control over who tells a story um but i think it depends on the subject i mean i think some subjects are really savvy about that stuff and some subjects don't care at all going in i mean obviously everyone has an opinion once they're actually sitting across the table from somebody people are much savvier about all of all of that now than than they used to be so the yes the conversation it's it's just a different conversation when i got to the hollywood reporter we had a male editor who would write a, a ton of our cover stories. Like never did we think twice about like, is he the right person to write about this ingenue? Like I, it was just, he's, he's our best writer. So he's going to do that. Like that converse, that conversation has changed dramatically in the last, in, in my sort of 11 years at this magazine. 
You mentioned you, Amy Schumer, hyperemesis. Uh-huh. Which I had to look up. Persistent severe vomiting leading to weight loss and dehydration as a condition occurring during pregnancy. Number one, I'm so sorry about that because that sounds horrible. <laughs> Number two, so you suffered from this. Amy Schumer suffered from this. Yes. Like I always think like, uh, all right, I'm interviewing some guy. I've been to his hometown. Okay. That's going to be useful at some point where I'm going to be like, Hey, you know, you're from Gary and Anna. I spent two weeks there, blah, 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 blah. Hyperemesis is horrible thing to go through. Is it a tool in your tool belt when you're sitting there? Absolutely. Out? How? It's the thing that you can bond over. It's you can connect. You've both been through this awful thing that nobody sort of understands. And everyone talks about like, oh, morning sickness. It's like, cool. How about afternoon sickness, night sickness, and middle of the night sickness for nine months? Um, so if it's like you feel like it's you're sort of part of this, this club. And I had actually, I had interviewed Amy Schumer um, I was doing another story actually as I was going as as I was pregnant with my second, which is when I suffered from this. And she had just done a documentary where she sort of detailed her struggles. And I remember talking to her on the phone. I was writing, I think, about Neil Brennan, who's another comedian. And she was just a secondary. And I mean, even in, on that call, I remember bringing it up. I think I was two months behind her in, in my pregnancy and and hearing her sort of so openly talking about it. It just made me feel less alone. I think I I had said it then. I mean, even even in a, like a 15 minute secondary, I felt like this was the thing that was going to connect us and thus put her ever so slightly more at ease. Um, so, yes, it's totally a tool. Is it would it be wrong? OK, she's married to Chris Fisher, who's a famous chef. Would it be wrong for me, knowing I'm going to interview Amy Schumer to two weeks earlier, eat at Chris Fisher's restaurant so I could say to Amy Schumer, hey, I ate at your husband's restaurant. It was That's great. Like, yeah, no, that feels I mean, that that feels forced and, and, and lame. And I'm not sure she's like, oh, cool. Um, <laughs> right. Like it's it's if you have real like genuine things. Um, and again, you, you rarely do. Right. Um there have been a few cases where, yes, like, you know, I grew up in the same town. Like that is that is a bonding thing. But but you rarely have those things that are actually going to sort of move the needle. But in that case, yeah, like 100 percent. And it, it came up within five minutes of being in that room. And again, it was in that like time period before the recorder was on. I just want to say, I don't know if I told you this. I came in second place in the North Atlantic Regional Figure Skating Championships at the Glen Falls <laughs> Arena. So <laughs> um, I'm never going to live that down, am I? I think I told you this when we spoke last time, perhaps, but one of my early experiences in this wild and wacky town is when someone took me to the Soho house and showed me naked pictures of all the women he was having sex with. Right? And you were like, oh, welcome to Hollywood. Right, it's great. Get me some. And um, I was horrified. And I have discovered I I'm not putting words in your mouth. I'm saying me personally. I've met many short nebbishy men in their early to mid 40s who seem to love this business because it's the opportunity to get laid by 22 year old off the bus, aspiring models from Idaho. And <laughs> I love the specificity. Uh-huh. Okay. Could be Missouri. And um, it just seems like a really gross, like you wrote this profile that involved a lot of me too. You are a woman covering this industry. It seems like there's a lot of grotesqueness in this industry still. And a lot of men who are looking for power over women is it still as pronounced as it was when you started? Do you see it at all in your profession? One hundred. But like, let's be clear. I, I spent a decade before that at at Forbes covering Wall Street and real estate, and like the world in, in New York that 
I mean, the, the sort of banking world like that, that has all of that, too. So, like, let's not pretend that it is so unique to just Hollywood. Um, I mean, <laughs> there are gross men in, in all industries. Um, yes. Have I seen exact? I mean, exactly what you're talking about for my 11 years in Hollywood? Like 100 percent. Are people a little smarter about how open they are with their um, <laughs> grossness, for lack of a better word? Yes. Although even that, it's interesting. I mean, the, the, the last two years, I guess, are a wash care of the pandemic. Um, but but certainly, yes, people have been slightly more <laughs> conscious of their behavior. Although now you're seeing the sort of backlash to the backlash. So it, it'll be interesting to, to see sort of where that goes. But I do see, I, I, you certainly have seen changes because the 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 makeup of the executive ranks have, have changed. Who sort of has power has has changed. And so there are a lot more women in charge. The, the, the people look a lot different in these jobs now than they did when I started out. Now, still at the top top, it's a lot of men. We do, we do a, um, we do two lists. Uh, two major lists at the Hollywood Reporter. One is the 100 most powerful women in entertainment. And then we do a 100 most powerful people in Hollywood or in entertainment. I forget exactly. I think it's in, in, in the entertainment industry. And, you know, people get annoyed that we still do this this women's list. And they, you know, it's, it's so sad. Like, why, why are you still ghettoizing women? Like, it's, this is silly. And the truth is, like, uh, yeah, I, I too wish that we didn't still have to do a list like this. But when you do the 100 most powerful people in Hollywood, it is a really it's it's still a if you're actually doing a, a, an accurate reflection of the industry, like that's a male list. It is a largely male list. So, yes, things are changing. But at the very, very top mogul level, like the power is still in the hands of of these white men. Is it true on number seven on the upcoming list? That's what I heard. Uh, yes, but you, if you work a little, I mean, just sell one more screenplay, I think you could get to six. I'm going through your archives, right? So you have like Sarah Silverman to produce doc about America's insulin crisis. Shonda Rhimes names a chief content officer and CMO at Shondaland. We're on Netflix team for improvised star packed who done it. Jack's media elevates Brooke Posh to present. Do you give a shit about this stuff? <laughs> um, uh, do I give a shit about this stuff? Here's the thing. I used to be in the sort of more in the breaking news world of of Hollywood. I was never particularly great at it, nor was I passionate about it. But what I did find helpful and why I'll still do some of those stories sometimes is because if you totally lose touch with the, you know, the sort of machinations on that really micro level, you you have no idea what sort of the, the larger trends are, right? You lose touch with what's the, the, the shifts that are happening within the industry. And so sometimes the, those stories are just about sort of keeping my finger, you know, just keeping a toe in, in the, the, the day-to-day machinations of Hollywood so that I don't lose out on the bigger stories of what's, what's happening. That makes sense. When I have sports writers on, I'm always like, give me your, give me your worst reporting story or your biggest uh-huh. nightmare story. Um, you are not a sports reporter, but that does not preclude you from this. Give me your worst, your worst moment as a reporter. I was working at Forbes and Steve Burke was taking over um, NBC Universal. And he was at the time and, and I continued to be so like really, really, really press shy. And 
it was, you know, I, I worked at Forbes for uh, nine, 10 years. Hollywood never. I mean, I, I sort of moved into covering Hollywood. No one ever there ever really cared about it. It was always like, oh, Lacey running off doing her thing. And yet, like every once in a while, my world became something that mattered to them. And and I was going to get the, the the first big Steve Burke story. And it was a huge deal. And I my recorder was on and did a 45 minute interview and my recorder was not on. Um, and I have used two recorders for every interview since. Wait, so what did you, what do you do? I, had, I was writing notes. I mean, I was, I was taking notes. Um, and I did the best that I could. Um, but I was not going to get another interview. Um, so that was definitely not my finest. Um, but it was a valuable lesson. Have a backup. Wow. It wasn't great. No, that's awful. Wait, let me ask you a final, final question. So you write, you've written about a lot of shows and movies over the years and different people involved in it. Let's say you watch a show like you got winning time. Just as an example, you saw the episodes of winning time and let's say you get a show and it just sucks. You're just like, this is garbage. I hate the show, but you're interviewing the star, the writer, so-and-so. And they say, so what do you think? I know you watch it. What do you think? What is the proper answer to that question? Um, <laughs> it's, it's a good question. Um, I try and I, I, it's a good question. And I'm now I'm like trying to think of what. Of if I've ever watched something that I that I thought was truly horrible that I'm that I'm writing about. I mean, you spin it, you try and find the, the thing that that you did enjoy about it. But I, just to be clear, like I am rarely interested. I am rarely writing about a show because I think it's going to be great. And then I'm disappointed. Like I'm writing about the show because I think there's something, there's some drama in the backstory that's going to make it a compelling story. Like, I don't care. There's plenty of shows out there. I mean, I have this internal conversation all the time. Like a great show does not make a great story. Um, So I I don't watch a show. Like I, I don't, it's irrelevant to me whether it's phenomenal or, or shitty. Um, it's the like, is there going to be, is the buildup to the show compelling enough? I mean, you have to, it has to be enough of a thing that people will care. Um, but the actual quality is, is kind of irrelevant, but yes, I, I'm guessing I, I think the answer is I probably find the thing that I liked about it and mention that. It's such a funny world. I just want to say it is such a funny world. Like, um, you know, I went to the premiere party for this thing, right? And it was like as magical a night as one could have, right? Mm -hmm. And you totally get the corrupting power of the glitz. And you're like, everyone loves you and everyone's smoking cigars and all the Adrian Brody's like, Jeff, hey, and Jason, you know, and they're like, hey, and you're like, whoa, and, and you you're like buzzing. You're like on this buzz. Right. And everything's great. And this is going to be the greatest show ever. And this show is amazing. And it must take some time to report on this profession and see through the bullshit's almost the wrong word. Like everything is a glow. Everything's great. Everybody's great. Everything's amazing. Yeah. But you also, I mean, yes, but you're talking about sort of one instance. I mean, usually I'm following careers where there've been a lot of those and they're also been a lot of things that didn't work out. And so I, I think, I mean, you just, you just come to it with, with that perspective. Right. I mean, it's, 
yeah, the lights are really bright. Um, but like that project nine out of 10 times is going to bomb. Like right. that's the nature of the business. And so, you know, Adrian Brody can be riding really high, but he's also had a lot of things that didn't work. And, yeah. and so has, I mean, I thought like John C. Riley, um, in, in talking to him for that piece, like when Adam McKay called him about Cassium, he's like, you know, I was sitting here being like, this is the end. Like I've done 86. I can't remember the number, like 86 movies. And like, this is it. And like, I do think that that is a mindset for a lot of these people, like where it's, cause it is, it's such a transient business and it's, and you are always one flop away from it all going away. And I think at the beginning, sure it's, it is, it can be super seductive, but I think for a lot of these people who have been around long enough, particularly the ones who are still here, um, they've seen the ebbs and flows. And so they're hardened by it. And I think reporting on it, I too have seen the ebbs and flows and, and I guess I'm hardened by it too. I want to thank today's guest, Lacey Rose, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Lacey on Twitter at Lacey V. Rose and read her work at The Hollywood Reporter. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money doing this podcast and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing. <laughs>